Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We have the following audio from the folks at Perilous Chronicle, who spoke with a person named Rose, who's the loved one of one of the hunger strikers involved in the Eastern Oregon Correctional Institute hunger strike. She spoke to the circumstances under which that strike concluded, as well as the evacuations that have happened due to the fires east of Salem, Oregon. Here's Rose. In terms of where the strike is at now, there, an outside organization was able to make contact with Stephen, the man whose life they were trying to save by going on hunger strike. So this outside organization was able to get a HIPAA waiver, um, a medical waiver, to get his information and to be able to talk to the prison doctors about what was going on with him. So he hasn't been transferred to a hospital but he does have an advocate now on the outside who is communicating with the prison staff to make sure that he's getting better care. So um, once that happened, the other men on strike decided to end their strike, especially since being on hunger strike during a pandemic outbreak makes them even more vulnerable to the virus, right? So at this time, they have ended the hunger strike, but they are continuing to do research around what policies have to be changed and and trying to build community power to pressure the Department of Corrections to make these changes. Rose also spoke with Perilous about the wildfires that are currently tearing through the state of Oregon and which recently led to the Oregon Department of Corrections to evacuate three prisons in the Salem, Oregon area. On September 8th, the ODOC announced on Facebook that it had evacuated 1,450 prisoners from Mill Creek, Santium, and Oregon State Correctional Institutions, which were threatened by the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head wildfires. The prisoners were evacuated to the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, where they will be housed on, quote, emergency beds throughout the institution, unquote, until the threat has passed. Some advocates have expressed concern about the potential spread of COVID-19 in these close quarters. In April, state corrections told Oregon Governor Kate Brown that to stop the spread of COVID in Oregon prisons, the state would need to release 40% of its prisoner population. Governor Brown refused to do so. So right now, the Department of Corrections itself acknowledges in order to stop the spread of COVID-19 in the prisons, or they need to release at least 40% of the prison population. Like that's the bare minimum to allow for social distancing or to stop the spread of COVID. That number, 40%, right? That's the bare minimum. What just happened with the evacuation of the three, three Salem prisons into an, a fourth Salem prison did the opposite, right? There were four, over 1,400 prisoners that were jammed into Oregon State Penitentiary that already housed over 1,800 prisoners. So the, 
they didn't quite double the population, but they've done the exact opposite of what's needed to stop the the spread of COVID. So they're expediting the spread, essentially. In addition to that being a medical nightmare, like the fact that that's going to spread COVID more and that that's going to result in in more infections and, and more cases of COVID and likely more deaths. Um, the DOC has already, through their reckless behavior, not prevented the spread of COVID. There have been six deaths in DOC. We'll likely see more as a result of, of this. And while it's understandable that they needed to evacuate people, there are so many other op- options of what to do. And people have been pressing for months and months for release. Some people say electronic home monitoring, but regardless of what they choose to do, there need to be mass releases right now. When there's already limited ability to communicate with our loved ones inside, when those things happen, we don't know about them until after. So it's really scary for these types of things to be happening and for us to not have access to our loved ones, and that these crises are likely only going to increase as these wildfires are spreading and as things get more serious. If people want to connect and be part of building, there's an email that is um, freethemallor for Oregon at gmail.com. Again, thanks to Perilous for their segment. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. This week marks the 49th anniversary of the Attica Uprising, when 1,300 prisoners in New York State overcame physical, social, and political barriers to accomplish their revolt. We spoke with Orisanmi Burton professor at American University who has interviewed many participants in the uprising and is currently preparing a book on the event. Professor Burton insists on prioritizing the voices and self-activity of the prisoners who are involved, leading him to take seriously their strategies and demands, rather than accepting either the state narrative, which celebrates the massacre carried out by police to end the revolt, or the liberal narrative which treats the prisoners as victims. While the massacre, in which 29 prisoners and 10 hostages were killed by police, is an important lesson in the ruthlessness of state repression, we can't let it overshadow the context of prison and anti-colonial struggles in which Attica occurred, or the courage and intelligence of the prisoners who made the revolt and continue to serve as a reference point for rebels across America's prison system.
Well, good morning. My name is Ori Sanmi Burton. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at American University. I'm a father of three and a husband. And for the past eight years, I've been doing research on the radical prison movement in New York and and Attica in particular. And I'm I'm thinking about Attica as a as a moment, as a revolutionary moment in not just the history of the prison struggle and not just in the history of the United States, but really as a moment in the history of broader struggles around global third world decolonization. I analyze Attica using the methodologies brought forth by a, a scholar named Cedric Robinson, who wrote a book called uh, black Marxism. And in that book, he outlines a, a methodology for thinking about Black radical politics. And one of the key aspects of that methodology is thinking about time and temporality in different kinds of ways. So the sort of formal periodization of Attica is September 9th to September 13th, 1971. But when you really think about all of the converging social and political forces that were taking place both within and outside of prisons, that periodization really quickly breaks down. So for instance, several of the Attica rebels dozens of them in fact had been in a prison rebellion in auburn some of them were still struggling in auburn simultaneously with attica auburn started on november 2nd 1970 right so that's you know an eight month period of struggle right there or more um, and then prior to that some of the rebels who were in auburn and attica were also in a rebellion in the New York City jails, which started in August of 1970. So if we're just thinking inside the prison about the struggle that culminates in Attica in 1971, that's a 13-month period of struggle right there. Um, but when you actually engage with the political thought and the writings of the Attica brothers who um, thought of themselves as engaging in broader politics, you very quickly see that they are thinking of themselves as engaging in decolonization, struggles for decolonization at the site of the prison. The prison wasn't necessarily the target of the action. It was a strategic site in which their struggle um, emerged, but that struggle necessarily exceeded the prison. They wrote to and received support not only from people who were supporting the prison struggle around the country, but in fact around the world. So you see letters of solidarity coming in from Cuba, from Palestine, um, from Vietnam, right? All of these other places that are actually engaging in revolutionary struggle where they are, and they're trying to figure out and think about how their various struggles are related. So if you zoom out and 
refuse to allow prison authorities to define the terrain of struggle, right? So when you think about Attica as limited to five days at this prison in Western New York, that's the state, that's you allowing the state to define the terrain of struggle. When you actually think with, alongside and through the rebels who actually led the rebellion, then you see that they're engaging with this as a much broader global struggle. And so that's the kind of work that I'm trying to bring to light um, in my own research. If we just focus on what was happening in Attica leading up to September 9th, 1971, the first thing we have to understand is that when Attica was built in the 1930s, it was designed to be riot proof. And it was actually built in response to an earlier cycle of prison riots or rebellions that occurred in Auburn and in Janamora in the 1920s. And so they built this in response to those uprisings and they designed it to be riot proof. And one of the features of the prison is that it's divided into four quadrants and each quadrant is designed and operated almost autonomously from the other four in the sense that if you're held captive in one block, A block or D block or B block, it's very rare, unless you have a particular job, it's very rare that you'll be able to interact with people from other places and other sections. And, you know, I mean, we could talk all day about the conditions, essentially, you know, what they called it was slavery and they called it war. And we should just take that seriously as an analysis, not only of the material conditions, but of the power relationship that existed in Attica at the time and still does to a large extent. And so there had always been various groups that prevailed within Attica. And as the late 60s approached, those groups started to become more politicized in line with the kinds of discourses that were circulating outside of the prison walls at that time. So the strongest and most organized group um, in the prison system at that time was the Nation of Islam. But by 68, you had a very large Black Panther formation, they read the 10-point platform, they read Mao Zedong, they read the Black Panther newspaper when they could get their hands on it. There was also a formation called the People's Party, which included incarcerated people across racial lines. There was a small but important formation of white captives that modeled themselves after the Weather Underground and there was a Young Lords formation as well. And the Young Lords were really, really key because part of how the prisons operated was through racial division, was through a concerted strategy on the part of prison authorities to divide the population along lines of race and gender and to unevenly distribute resources to different racial groups in order to main, so in order to ensure that they would um, fight amongst each other, and this is still one of the key management strategies of prisons everywhere, 
uh, and it's also a key strategy of, of warfare. It was very much organized in an anti-Black fashion, which is to say that Black people who were in prisons received the worst treatment of all. And so what this did, especially for the Latinx population, was it created an incentive for them to try to associate as much as possible with the white captives because their distance from blackness meant their you know distance from the extreme forms of violence that were perpetrated against black captives right so but the young lords really transformed this dynamic because the young lords understood themselves largely as black puerto ricans and a large proportion of the young lords organization on the outside was in fact black so the young lords really transformed the political consciousness of the Latinx population in the prison system and helped them to identify uh, more with uh, Black politics than they had previously. So leading up to the rebellion, and this is coming on the heels of uh, re rebellions in the New York City jails and a rebellion in Auburn, these various groups started to come together and they started to form study groups. There was one particular formation, which was a uh, sociology class, which started in early 1971, I want to say. And it was one of the few places in Attica where people from the different quadrants of the prison could actually come together was taught by a prisoner named Fred LaShore, Samuel Melville, who was called the Mad Bomber because he had bombed a series of military installations and corporations that represented imperialism. He was in the class. Herbert X. Blyden, who had played a prominent role in the New York City jail rebellions in the Manhattan House of Detention, was in that class. And initially it started out as just a regular, what they called a textbook sociology class, but very quickly it morphed and they began to apply the principles of research to their immediate material conditions, which was the prison. So they started to actually conduct investigations to try to figure out where they could exert some power. And so they investigated the economic organization of the prison, the different prison industries, the things that kept the prison going, right? So the laundry system uh, where prisoners were doing laundry for the guards and washing their uniforms and were being exploited in multiple ways through that process. They investigated the profits being generated from the metal shop and various other areas. And also through this sociology class, they developed libraries where they collected their books and created required reading lists and circulated those to try to politicize the population. And because each of the people from this class were from different sections of the prison, this, they were able to disseminate these ideas throughout the prison really, really effectively. And then the last thing I'll say is that when George Jackson was assassinated, this had a profound impact on the entire population. Um, his first book, Soledad Brother, was out and the men in Attica were able to, to read that book. 
he had done some interviews in the New York Times, which they were able to read, as well as writings in the Black Panther newspaper. Some of the Attica brothers actually had been in correspondence with George Jackson through their lawyers. And George Jackson was an un, a, unapologetic revolutionary. And his killing really had a, a, a profound effect on the entire population across racial lines, right? Um, because all of the people who were in prison had the utmost respect for his capacity for resistance, his intellect, his ability to describe the forms of oppression and struggle that were happening in the prison. And so when he was killed in San Quentin, the Attica brothers held a, uh, a silent fast in the mess hall. And this had a really galvanizing effect on the coming together of these different groups that I just described, because you know, prior to 1970, 1971, there, there was a lot of tensions within these groups, right, between them. So I mentioned the racial tensions, there were political tensions. So the Panthers didn't necessarily get along with the Nation of Islam because the people who killed Malcolm X were members of the Nation of Islam. And so there were a lot of tensions across lines of race, gender, and politics. And you really start to see this melt away in the months and days leading up to September 9th. A lot of the um, recollections of the rebellion by people who were there include statements attesting to the fact that everyone knew that a rebellion was going to happen. Like I just mentioned, it had already happened in the city jails and it had already happened at Auburn and everyone knew that another one was going to happen. And they knew that because the repression was so thick. Now, they didn't necessarily know that it was going to happen at Attica. Some people thought it would happen at Clinton or other places, but that people knew it was going to happen. Right. And it happened spontaneously. There's a long story about how it happened. There had been a black prisoner had gotten into a fight and was brutalized the previous day. And then there were rumors circulating about whether or not he had been beaten to death or what have you. And so, you know, I, I actually think that that incident is less important than many others do. Um, I think that kind of gets into the, the true crime arena where we're trying to just, you know, like do a play by play of how the whole thing develops. And I think that when we get into that level of detail, we lose sight of the fact that the people who were engaged in this and the people who experienced it understood it to be inevitable. So if it didn't happen on September 9th, it would have happened some other time and it would have been precipitated by some other incident, right? There was nothing particularly unique about the precipitating incident. And I think that's actually what's really important. So essentially what happened was that prisoners from A block, as they were being marched through the hallway, they stomped a guard out and they took his keys and um, they flooded through the prison and started unlocking gates and other people joined in. And, you know, like I mentioned before, the, the only words I have to describe the conditions, not only the material conditions, but the forms of psychological abuse, racial domination, sexualized and gender-based violence, the only words I have to describe those are slavery and war. 
So when the brothers in A block unlocked the gates, people, you know, took the opportunity to destroy and inflict harm and damage against what they saw as the source of their oppression and their dehumanization. And so they flooded through the prison. They beat up a lot of guards, but more so than beating up guards, they destroyed the, a lot of the infrastructure of the actual prison, right? They set fires, they flooded the place, they broke up the equipment, they um, set off a couple of bombs, took some smoke grenades. And so it started out very much like Fanon talks about how decolonization starts. He says it's an event of total disorder, you know, and George Jackson picks up on this too. He, he talks about revolution as being a moment of perfect disorder. And so what happens is once that sort of like ecstatic moment of rebellion reaches a certain level and folks start all convening into D yard, one of the four quadrants of the prison, what we see is a really amazing instance of self-organization. And so one of the prisoners whose name was Roger Champin, who was a brilliant autodidact, intellectual, self-taught jailhouse lawyer and a very well-respected football player, apparently, was in D-Yard and sort of just was didn't participate in the in the, the initial taking of the prison was apparently just sitting in his cell and eventually when everyone flooded into d yard he walked out there and looked around and recalls just being aghast at what he saw because it was total chaos and it was very clear to him that the rebellion was going to implode on itself so he describes seeing D-Yard as being littered with trash. People were fighting. Some people were attempting to enact retribution against the guards, many of whom have been stripped naked. People were getting high on the um, drugs that they confiscated from the infirmary. And so he talks about how he grabbed a megaphone, stood up on a picnic bench, and just started to announce to D-Yard the need for them to organize. And I wish I knew exactly what he said. I'm sure it was, you know, moving. And, you know, from that point on, people began to take it upon themselves to use the skills that they had at their disposal to try to transform the rebellion into an organization, into something that would actually have a message for the world, not just a refusal of the forms of violence and domination, but actually as a positive demand for another world. So I think we can talk about the actual demands that they articulated to the state and to Oswald for specific reforms to conditions, but I think we actually need to read their self-organization as a demand in and of itself. And so they held elections, they elected leaders from the various blocks. They made sure that people from different organizations, the organizations that I mentioned, were represented there and people from different racial groups. And that's sort of how it started. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.